I am very, very excited to be welcoming you, Phoebe. Um, Phoebe Armanius received her um, BA, her ma master's and PhD from uh, Ohio State University. Her research interests have focused on the history of Christian communities in the Middle East, particularly on Egypt's Coptic Christians, on Muslim Christian relations, as well as the food history and media studies. Uh, Phoebe has been awarded fellowships from the Fulbright Foundation, from Gerda Henkel Foundation, from John Templeton Foundation and the Mellon Foundation, uh, as well as others. In 2015, she was a visiting fellow at Harvard Law School, and in recent years, she served as an editorial board member for the International Journal of Middle East Studies, as well as on the steering committee for the Middle Eastern Christianity Unit at the American Academy of Religion. Phoebe Armanius is also the author of Coptic Christianity in Ottoman Egypt and the co-author with uh, Boach Ergene uh, of Halal Food, who will also be joining us um, in the call, uh, in, in the Zoom uh, conversation today, about Halal Food, the book which we'll be discussing uh, for today's series. Um, she's now completing a book-length project on the history of Christian television in the Middle East and has also begun research for another exciting book project, which looks at the comparative history of Christian food practices in the Eastern Mediterranean and Southern Europe. In 2021-2022 academic year, she was the Bennett Bosky Distinguished Visiting Professor of History at Williams College, and she currently co-directs Middlebury College Accent Center for Humanities. Thank you very much, Phoebe, for joining us today. Uh, we're very happy to be hosting you here, and uh, it's really a pleasure to be starting this conversation uh, that perhaps we've uh, before touched upon very lightly, um, about food and religion in general, but more specifically about Islamic food rules and the concept of halal food. Um, I'd like to start with a question. Um, in recent years in academia, I felt that food as an area of studies is, is really becoming more and more an, of an interesting topic for um, uh, researchers, for um, professors, for teachers, but as well as students. So what is it like uh, researching, but also teaching food history? Well, first of all, Selma, thank you so much for having me here today. It's it's really an honor and privilege to join you in Madbach, uh, in Africa, in this conversation. Um, to get at your question, I'm going to start with my own personal experience, experience which was teaching about food. Um, my research had been a bit interested in food studies going back 10, 12 years, but I really started out with uh, thinking about a, a class to teach food in the Middle East, the history of food in the Middle East. And from there, my actually research focus began to grow uh, larger. And, and the book Halal Food was actually born out of a class I started teaching at Middlebury College back in 2013 uh, uh, on food history of the Middle East. So it is very exciting. I think in the in the last 20 years, when we looked at how we teach Middle East history, in light of global events that have unfolded, we often found uh, ourselves focusing on a lot of, rightfully, I think, uh, political narratives and, and issues that might have an impact uh, on the news uh, that we're watching to kind of give a context to our students of events in the Middle East. But I had thought something was tangibly missing for my students, the idea of thinking about the flavor, the culture, uh, the lived reality of peoples in the region, which you can really most tangibly get at through food. Um, when you think about food, it permeates religion, economics, environment, human-animal relations, um, just such a variety of topics that are uh, incredibly rich. And for students, there's also always this tactile element. It's a food they may have tried before. It's a food they may have had in an urban center or somewhere during their travels. And when you're talking about it, there, there's an association that's made uh, a sensory, there's a sensory association that's so core when you teach food history, food studies that you don't always find in other areas. And I think both food and religion have that in common is that we've all experienced and experienced at some point of time, 
um, you know, our own relationships with uh, either food or religion. So it's something that perhaps everyone, everyone in the world can relate to. Um, and I believe we've had a discussion before briefly about how the idea for your book, uh, Halal Food, was born in the classroom. How was that? And what was the process of researching and writing that book? So a lot of scholars had looked at the question of halal often in very specific, um, thinking about very specific religious terms or by in the work of some anthropologists who've examined how halal is actually uh, practiced today or thought of today in specific regions, particularly Southeast Asia. Um, there wasn't, uh, when I was teaching the topic, uh, a book or reading material to really give them a coherent sense of the totality of halal's history going back to early Islamic times and how it kind of transformed and was shaped up till the present. And um, Boach, uh, Ergene, my co-author and I were approached by a publisher who saw I was teaching this class in Middlebury and, and said, hey, how about how about a book out of that experience? What what do you what do you want to what do you think your students really ought to have reading material about most uh, urgently? And we said halal food and, and Boach has a background in Ottoman legal history and Islamic legal history in particular. And I'm interested in religious practice and Muslim Christian relations. And it was a very uh, good fit for thinking about this project. And I'm sure there's a lot of um, interconnections there between food rules and the legalities of it. So I think that was um, that was also an, an area of commonality between you two. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of food rules, um, now, of course, it's it's a universal concept. You know, it's not unique to Islam. It's not unique to the Arab world. Um, different groups throughout different points of time in history um, and until now each have their own food uh, set of food requirements or guidelines that really um, guide them. Things uh, things like you know we we find these connections and common grounds between food avoidances, what to eat, what not to eat, when to eat, how to eat them, um, and what is deemed harmful, uh, you know, or considered dirty is usually to be avoided. And also I feel like there's an emphasis in like rituals perhaps as well. So considering Islam did not, you know, of course emerge in a void, it was always in in conversation with what was happening before it and, and with it. Um, how might have other food rules for, you know, of other cultures have influenced Islam and the concept of halal? Okay, well, let's start by talking about one of the most obvious and and most clear prohibitions in the Quran. And um, Islamic food rules um, for halal haram tend to come uh, from the Quran, but also from the Hadith literature, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, so the, one of the most um, obvious and I would argue clearest is uh, the prohibition against pork. And many people immediately think that's, of course, tied to uh, the earlier monotheistic prohibition in Judaism against pork. And on some level, it is. There were Jewish tribes in the Arabian Peninsula in the early days of the rise of Islam. Uh, and there was a fam- we know there was a familiarity with their tradition. But you can go back further. Um, the prohibition against pork likely existed in different parts of the Near East as well in ancient times. Uh, It's unclear, but there are some indications um, that in ancient Egypt, pork uh, and pig eating was often frowned upon. Um, And um, you see some evidence of potentially pork rearing in parts of the Levant, but it's very minimal, Uh, maybe uh, wild boar consumption in Anatolia. But again, in general, and potentially for geographic re- reasons, weather climactic reasons, you know, the rearing of pork uh, required water resources and was not always something that was conducive for the environment. Uh, and uh, there might be there might be other prohibitions that am- arise from early Christianity. Actually, there are some early Christian writers and saints who tended to speak uh, very prohibitively against pork consumption and saw the pork as a particularly filthy creature. So yes, they do predate Islam and there is an awareness of that and and it seems to play uh, a role in how that comes about. 
other other traditions make other prohibitions or rules, I should say, they're not always prohibitions, rules, come out potentially from the arid Arabian context in which Islam arose. Um, Arabia was not so plentiful in food resources. There were very specific and limited amounts of foods available for uh, the Bedouin tribes to, and you've studied, I think yourself, some of them, the importance of uh, herd animals and dairy products and milk products in that culture. That That is one thing that they turn to, but less availability of fresh fruits, for example, and vegetables or only very specific ones. What that does is um, tilt the, the way in which Islam comes to view food rules actually in a more, I would say, expansive way. <laughs> uh, it tends to be in general less restrictive than uh, rules that come out of Judaism. And if you were to compare it uh, even side by side with some of the strictest rules in Eastern Christianity, which we may talk about at the end today, um, also it's more expansive and generous. And I, I think it comes from the fact of not wanting to uh, be harsh and restrict the eating habits of peoples already living uh, in, in an austere environment. So interesting. Um, I see here um, a part uh, from the book that talks about how the term, you know, perhaps halal has come to be and how the relationship to halal and haram um, and how, for example, so it says, uh, for example, the Quran states that Allah has permitted um, halla, uh, right? Permitted mm -hmm. uh, trade and has forbidden um, interest. It is not lawful for you to inherit women by compulsion. Also prohibited uh, to you marriage uh, for marriage are your mothers, your daughter, your sisters, and and so it seems like it 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 doesn't exist, you know, in in silo also within the Islamic. Um, uh, institution and and teachings or tashari'a tash in, in general or sharia perhaps is the, the the right way so if someone is listening and have no clue what halal is or may perhaps our idea of what halal is if you live in the arab world it's um it's everywhere <laughs> you know and perhaps you don't really think of it unless you think of halal and haram and then alcohol comes in the picture um so what would be a modern day definition of what halal is, what halal food is specifically? Yeah, um, I mean, it in many ways it is informed by the rich past in which it came about, in which it was born. Particularly here I'm referring to the medieval Islamic tradition, legalistic tradition, that came to really articulate and define what halal is, what haram is, and actually some other categories in between, uh, like uh, mubah, uh, you know, which is uh, mm. praiseworthy, uh, um, you know, or, or something allowed, actually, um, um, or makruh, which is detestable, but not quite haram. Um, so, um, so I, I think it, it still today is rooted in that medieval tradition. It's, it's not about maybe, uh, the terminology per se, as much as having to deal with new challenges, which we can work our way to of what modern, uh, the modern food and modern culinary wor world offers in terms of eating challenges for Muslims. But at its basics, and you alluded to this already, Salma, and we mentioned no pork, um, Prohibitions also um, in the Quran, especially no grape wine. Um, to some extent, people think also no wine made from dates. But medieval Islamic jurists will come to extend that uh, to um, al other alcoholic drinks, although that gets debated, by the way, in the medieval period, which ones are uh, prohibited. Um, intoxication is particularly frowned upon and uh, haram. Uh, in all uh, interpretive traditions. Uh, no carrion. Carrion is maita in Arabic. So you do not eat an animal, say, that you know died of natural causes. It must be slaughtered in a particular way, which takes us to the concept of proper slaughter in halal rules. You do not strangle animals. A sharp knife is used to cut uh, uh, the throat of an animal, particular uh, tracheal, esophageal, uh, 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 parts have to be severed. Uh, also, animals should not be suffering uh, during life or while they are being killed. 
the name of Allah has to be pronounced during slaughter. Of course, you might also be familiar with no blood or byproducts of blood, uh, which is considered uh, nejis, um or filthy. And uh, that this is why during proper halal slaughter, blood must be drained. And this is a commonality with, uh, with kosher, with kashrut rules. Uh, and then there are other more specific things that actually end up getting uh, disputed by the different Islamic legal schools. We have four main ones in Sunni Islam and one major one in Shia Islam. And so things like, um, you know, different kinds of seafood uh, and different uh, Thai shellfish versus regular fish. Uh, whether you can or cannot consume the meat that is slaughtered by Jews or Christians. That's another thing that gets debated in the literature as well. Uh, but some of the earlier provisions I talked about, tend, they, they come from that medieval context and tend to inform how questions today about specific halal products are discussed. Uh, there is a, an awareness of that, the past traditions. And, and then the argument we make in the book is we see... Uh, a decreased uh, plurality of voices today. There is a move today towards a more restricted or uh, uniform way of understanding halal, in contrast maybe to the way medieval scholars uh, and, and early modern scholars approached it. Interesting. Um, there, is there such a thing as Islamic food be, beyond halal? I mean, I hear that sometimes, um, and I find it perhaps from one point a little problematic because Islam covers a really vast region geographically that encompasses within itself a lot of cultures that have a lot of differences between them and their food uh, customs or food norms and their own um, uh, you know, uh, minorities, for example, that have different ways of eating that might differ, um, does not represent perhaps all the, um, the, the, the population that might be in that region. So um, what do you think of that? Is there such a thing as Islamic food? Yeah, I I have a I, I think that's a that's a conversation we ought to have at large in food studies. I, I do agree with you. I, I think it it really um when you talk about food that way, you really do end up overlooking an array of diversity in that art that is embedded within that. And it's hard to find what would be in common within different foods on different parts of the world? And what they do have in common is some the enforcement of halal, right? Mm. Uh, and usually, no. so is it more accurate than to talk about halal food in a particular historical period, in a particular place and time? Um, and to think about how halal food gets interpreted differently in one part of the Muslim world versus another part of the Muslim because we do have that. We have that in history and we have that today. Uh, I, I find the plurality of refining that language of saying, let's compare how halal is interpreted in X versus Y, uh, a little more satisfactory than thinking about that the food of the entirety of the Islamic world, so many people in history and today, um, has something in common. Having said that, we do sometimes talk as uh, historians about the food of different Islamic empires, the mm -hmm. cuisine, the cuisines of the grand Islamic empires, the Mughals, the Safavids, the Ottomans, for example, uh, the Mamluks, you know, the period of Islamic rule in Spain, um, you know, but when you think about that, those are actually a bit more geographic, you know, they, they do have a geographic specificity and a time and place uh, that that renders them more maybe satisfactory to discuss uh, than than maybe a broader cuisine of the Islamic world. Yeah, and I think that that might be also echoed when uh, we refer to food like Jewish food or Christian food, you know, <laughs> I think um, Islam also shares um, such um, problematics when, it, you know, with other religions, whenever there's there's a religious food, perhaps that is specific to um, a certain group of people. And maybe maybe the, the 
the right ways to say food ways instead of food, because it really focuses on how um, food is approached, is behaved around, is uh, practiced in marketplaces, uh, with vendors in the street and the way it's cooked, instead of just focusing on that, 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 that food as items, uh, perhaps. Um, okay, so, so spe speaking of specific details, um, are there any traditions that um, have influenced from the Arabian Peninsula, based on what you uh, referred to before, um, that perhaps came in that was born into the in the harshness that you talked about the harsh the harshness of the desert or the elements and the environment and how it influences uh, food traditions. Is there something similar that still um, you know that that we have that we we practice uh, in the region um, or Muslims practice in the region that is born out of that? Yeah, the one good example I can really think of, um, and then, you know, it's it's been debated on to what extent, but I think there's good evidence to say that really comes out of something from early Islam. Yeah, I'm glad you have that map, actually. I, I would, I'm going to go to a dish for you here, which is uh, Tharid. Uh, we talk about this in our book. Tharid is uh, considered in the Hadith literature, the sayings of the Prophet and his companions, which is an important source for Islamic law. In that literature, Tharid is talked about as the Prophet Muhammad's favorite food, favorite dish. Mm -hmm. And so this is uh, boiled mutton, and uh, the broth of that mutton is used to soak uh, dry bread and served, um, you serve it, you know, with that soaked bread and some of that mutton, and it was his favorite food. And sometimes maybe there would be chickpeas if that was available uh, or not. But what you see, uh, and I, I see Daniel Newman is here, so he can maybe uh, mention some points in the Q&A. But in the medieval Islamic world, you start seeing really um, the sophistication of that dish. That dish, because it was seen as the Prophet's favorite dish, becomes something Muslims want to emulate and spreads out throughout the, the medieval Middle East in a variety of, of ways. And so I think in the Abbasids, you see additions of uh, stewed fruits and nuts and um, possibly rices, I believe. And the bread is not the coarse barley bread that the uh, of the Arabian Peninsula, but the more sophisticated, you know, urban desired wheat bread that you have a sample of next to you, I think. Something like that. And, um, and you know, in... We think today, uh, I don't know, I don't think it's a stretch. I, I think what where we see it today is in uh, Egypt and the Levant uh, in Feta, something mm -hmm. like Feta. Um, and uh, and also in Jordan, uh, it's believed uh, Mensaf is a kind of distant cousin of that concept as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I do think you have here a food that was so prominent and so favored and starts to then have its, its own life in, in Islamic culinary history. It's interesting to think of uh, bread and how uh, it, uh, it takes other forms beyond just eating it baked, freshly baked or stale, however the form is. Um, and perhaps, like you said, it was the, 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 the austere circumstances that led to this creativity you know, of what can we make with bread? You know, what other forms can bread be? Uh, let's play with the texture and explore how how it would taste like if we added, if we pounded it, if we mashed it and, and turned it into more of a porridge consistency. Um, it'll be interesting to perhaps, um, yeah, uh, look into how it came to be. I, I, if I can add, I, I think this is a Mediterranean, uh, you know, uh, habit that we see what to do with bread, how to store bread in, in light of the climate. Um, so from ancient times, you see the, the concept, you still see this in places like Greece, throughout the Middle East and everywhere, the concept of storing dried bread, you know, so it's it's bread that's actually specifically dried out and made into, um, you know, we in the Greek cuisine, they often talk about it as rusks. You know, okay. and so they're very hard. They're very dried. They're twice baked. Uh, in Egypt, uh, we actually use a word from Greco heritage, botsomat, right? Uh, oh. Which is these dried breadsticks. That and what you do, you can do everything with them. You can re-soak them in bread and uh, in milk. I'm sorry. You can re-soak them in broth. 
Um, nowadays, you see them as, you know, you, we soak them in olive oil uh, in places that had had that as part of the cuisine. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't uh, think of that. And I, I've always thought Baksumat or Baksumat is uh, is Ottoman or Tur- Turco-Ottoman, Turkish? It's Peximet uh, in Turkish, but the origin of that word is actually Greek. So, yeah, it may have made its way through that uh that root but uh the original word is actually of greco heritage so yeah wonderful connection <laughs> um so now we're looking at uh we have an image um of what seems to be medieval illustration um mm-hmm. of a bunch of people cooking and perhaps they're cooking for uh, we we do see perhaps a cook or someone pouring something in a vessel of some sort it's alcohol um, probably <laughs> alcohol so yeah. why is alcohol prohibited um as i mentioned earlier really the 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 part that seemed most detestable was intoxication Uh, inebri- the act of being inebriated and intoxicated that uh, and that's why there are some debates whether uh in in early islamic times most of them have been resolved in in favor of, of more of an outright prohibition but in earlier times there were conversations about whether in small amounts it might be okay uh so long as it does not intoxicate so so long as people do not drink it uh to the point of reaching that it th- this this loss of control and uh potentially be acting in ways that are unethical misbehaving that alcohol might lead good pious believers to to behave and to act in uh was really something of a concern kind of when you're thinking of the morality of that religion as it is arising this becomes an important part of how you behave um also i i i think though the reason it lingers as a big debated point and also often gets violated throughout history we have a lot of records of violations of this rule and laxities yeah. laxities towards interpreting or enforcing that rule we talk about this in the book and we think it's because something like pork it's a meat source it's okay to say you should not eat it because people have other meat sources they can turn to it's not the only one so it's there not alternatives so- to to meats whether whether other meats or other sources of protein exactly exactly alcohol and what it does uh, as a psychoactive substance uh, to the body does not have correlates of course you know and of course actually when you have things that are dealt with like hashish and kot and even coffee which alters the mind in different ways they often get talked about in medieval islamic literature and early modern literature in the same way as the debates over alcohol does there in fact coffee for a long time was thought to be an intoxicant and was talked about that way when it gets first uh, introduced to the middle east at large in, in the ottoman world in particular uh in the 15th and 16th centuries so um so i i guess i think this is the issue you you have a question about what kind of alcohol is prohibited i started with grape and possibly date wine as the most clearly articulated negation of alcohol drinking inebriation intoxication being prohibited but other sources of of intoxication then get talked about and expanded as the formulations of islamic law uh, are made did a lot of people drink before islam in the arabian peninsula I mean we so oh in the Arabian Peninsula um I I you 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 got me really intrigued with the date date wine. <laughs> yes 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 we think we think that that existed in pre-Islamic times yes and we also know that there was access to uh grape wine coming from places like uh, uh there there were uh, grape vines in Yemen uh and of course grape wine being produced in parts of the Levant that through trade would have mm-hmm. made its way uh to the Arabian Peninsula and as we know of course the Arabian Peninsula was uh, a caravan trade center on the eve of the rise of Islam 
so on the eve of the rise of Islam, they would have uh, these mobile caravan traders would have had access and been able to bring these things or potentially make some of them like from dates um, locally. We see um, a lot of references to uh, alcoholic preparations in uh, medieval cookbooks. Um, I see a drink called Buza mm-hmm. in um, in some some of these cookbooks, and uh, a lot of mentions of it in um, historical um, descriptions of the societies at the time in Egypt, in Yemen as well. Um, and also, if I'm not mistaken, it's it might be related to um, Subia, I think, mm-hmm. or maybe another preparation of it that was in before its current form mm-hmm. uh, included some alcohol. So it gets me curious to know what happened that made it um made alcohol preparations or alcohol mentions in cookbooks for example much less uh, now than it used to be before <laughs> how much time do we have for that <laughs> um i think it has to do with a increased trend in general whether it comes to alcohol or other foodstuffs um towards a more conservative reading of how these rules should be applied. There, there tends to be um, less flexibility. And, and I think it has to do with the idea uh, that arises of finding common standards, uh, the rise of the modern state, the rise of industrialization, uh, mm-hmm. when you're mass producing foods or packaging foods or, um, you know, uh, manufacturing animal husbandry, the way it goes from being, you know, some animals are farmed in your local village and your local butcher will do the slaughter or, you know, your local slaughterhouse will do the slaughter to, you know, mass uh, corporations that are running these things. Increasingly, the demand has arisen for greater standardization. And it's the most conservative common denominator mm-hmm. uh, in halal rules that will appeal to everyone. Do you see what I'm saying? How do you reach everybody with your foodstuffs? Um, And it's a more conservative reading of um, almost no toleration of alcohol presence. In in some cases, alcohol present even in like fruit juices gets talked about. We we mentioned this in our book, Um, Mm. you know, uh, drinks that might actually naturally ferment on their own. You did not intend them to be alcoholic. That gets talked about as well. Mm. Um, To uh, things like gelatin, which is most commonly a pork byproduct. What do you do with that? Uh, How do you, you know, avoid it and evade it in your food? It's actually a very pervasive foodstuff in manufactured eating. So I think some of these questions, why we are becoming or seeing a trend as historians and observers of more conservative readings of halal rules have to do with the rise of standardization and the the modern demands that we find uh, Muslim states and corporations operating within those states uh, facing and dealing with. Okay. Um, I want to speak a little bit about um, food rituals in, um, in the halal institution in Islam. So, um butchering meat has specific rules um that are to be followed and specific ways of of butchering meat like you mentioned um you briefly mentioned before um how are these rules carried out today are they exactly the same as they were before as they were intended when they first came out or have they changed? Do you see certain changes or developments in uh, butchering, for example, butchering meat? So I would I would just change this a little bit more to slaughter. Um, mm-hmm. Islam in general ha- tends to be a bit more capacious with butchering in the sense of how you cut up the meat and which parts of the meat can be consumed. Then say Judaism, which actually has very specific provisions on how 
a butcher will cut up an animal once it is killed. Okay. So if we turn that question a little bit to slaughter, uh, are, do we see similarities in how th- that wasn't how you kill the animal in early Islamic thinking and medieval juristic traditions to today? So the intent is to follow the historical tradition. That is the intent of slaughterers today. But what you find yourself in, you know, is a situation where you do not, as I mentioned, have just a local uh, slaughter or slaughterhouse or abattoir, if you will, in your own town or village or neighborhood doing the slaughtering for you. What you are often dealing with, uh, both in Muslim countries and in the diaspora, uh, is food that is, um, uh, I'm sorry, animals that are slaughtered in massive industrial style slaughterhouses. And so how do you enforce specific rules about animal welfare, which Islam is actually clear about that animals must be well treated before and during the act of slaughter? How do you ensure a swift death? Um, do you, uh, and, and this is one of the chapters in the book, do you permit uh, the stunning, the pre-slaughter stunning of animals. Uh, in modern slaughterhouses, uh, animals such as cows, uh, sheep, goats are often uh, uh, stunned with a stun gun kind of contraption, and uh, uh, and they are then rendered unconscious, and then their throats are slit. Sorry to be so graphic early in the day. Um, but what that what that does, this act of stunning, is potentially render them unconscious or potentially actually kill them if the for the blow of the the force of the blow might be so severe. So does what Muslims are debating are things important things like once you stun pre-stun uh, pre-slaughter stun the animal, could that stunning act kill the animal and render it carrion? Remember, they are against carrion. You do not slaughter an animal that's already dead. If the animal has already died, it is not fit for consumption. But how do you ensure this all happens in the context of a slaughterhouse processing hundreds and hundreds of animals? Uh, And we talk extensively about that in the book, actually. Boach was in charge of doing a lot of that uh, material, and and I'm glad he's here if he wants to add anything in the end on this. But um, in general, what we're seeing is a a more conservative reading than about pre-stunning slaughter, which is intended to be an act of hu- a more humane act. That's being debated too, whether it's a humane act. It's, it's an act that was propagated by uh, humane welfare uh, organizations towards animals. Uh, but for Muslim slaughterers, they see this as problematic in interpreting their religious rules. And in Judaism, by the way, it is not accepted to, to slaughter animals in this way, uh, okay. to stun them first and then slaughter. So sharpness of knife are you are you saying the name of god bismillah as your slaughter all how do you deal with all of these challenges in a big industrial slaughterhouse does it have to be by hand the the traditionally yes graphic details uh, (laughs) like you said but um it's something that we read sometimes on food packages that are labeled halal some of them note out that they're uh, hand slaughtered. So um, does this mean that there are no machines? You know, how is it industrialized then? No, no. In the industrial process, uh, there there are machinery used. And in some in, in interpretive context, that's been deemed acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's been deemed acceptable because it, the focus is more on the swift act, the merciful, uh, clean cut, the sharpness of the blade, uh, mm-hmm. which halal foods are very preoccupied with. Having said that, there are people who say that's not preferential and that the preferred way would be to do it by hand. But that's being debated and it's often seen as impractical. And incidentally, a lot of these questions are really emerging and becoming important, especially in, in diaspora Muslim communities. Yeah, uh, which who often have to live in an environment that they do not have the same control uh, on their slaughterhouses and on the way they might uh, interpret their own rules that uh, that uh, in in this context in these uh, different environments. And perhaps in such environments, then the transparency of the process becomes more emphasized and more needed from a Muslim consumer point of view. So. Um, 
So speaking of diasporic communities and today's age, how did halal food overall develop over time? And this concept of halal food, does it differ in in the West, for example, than in the Arab world? Does it differ in, in India? Does it have different meanings depending on where you are now? I mean, the rules are straightforward and understood well enough that I wouldn't say it's the rules themselves that differ. But again, we're back to this issue of interpretive needs. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to give you an example, you know, some Sunni Islamic schools like the Hanafi school uh, really have very narrow ideas and definitions about what kinds of seafood you ought to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the fish ought to like look like fish and crustaceans are not uh, really something that's allowable in in general Hanafi. There are potentially minor people who disagree within the Hanafi school. But then you take it to the Shafi and the Hanafi school, by the way, dominated in Ottoman lands, parts of Egypt and other you know, parts of the Middle East that we know to be kind of the bedrock. Um, but you go to Southeast Asia, the Islamic legal school, there's the Shafi'i school that's more dominant. And, and mm-hmm. there, that's a, that's a culture of seafood consumption. And mm-hmm. so you have uh, eating traditions that are justified, that are more expansive and capacious in how they interpret what you eat in terms of seafood. Um, so I, I think it's not that the rules are viewed as different, but we are in a mode, we we have a robust tradition going back to the medieval period, and we see echoes, echoes of it today, despite the trends of increased conservatism in manufactured food and so on. We see these trends, trends still prevailing as regional um, rules and, and regional pathways by which food is consumed. Yeah, and it seems like it really is an active conversation with with its environment and its geography as well, uh, Mm -hmm. which is uh, quite interesting. So, um, uh, Phoebe, what are you working on next as an upcoming project? It's it's very, maybe it takes a different approach. You're focusing on Christian diet. Yes, yes. So as you mentioned, I'm finishing a book on history of Christian TV in the Middle East, which is almost done. And I've moved on to, um, and I think you have a stamping, uh, or are we going to get to that after I say something? I guess I'll say something first. Um, So I'm very interested in taking some of the richness of of issues that I've learned about from Halal uh, Mm -hmm. and kind of returning to where I started uh, my my own personal interest. My own upbringing uh, is uh, as one of a Copt in Egypt of uh, the Coptic Christian heritage. And we grew up with so many restrictive food traditions uh, following vegan fasts and Lent and fasts devoted to the Virgin Mary. And uh, as one of my my friends uh, calls Orthodox Christianity, like we were we were vegan before it was cool, you know? <laughs> and, and she's, Yeah, and she's right. She's right. And so I, you know, just like I think, halal food has really given rise to something and Muslims are talking about this called halal cuisine, a particular way of cooking that's aware and um, and restricted by particular rules that results in creative interpretations of dishes and ingredients and techniques. I, I see the same pattern uh, among Christians, particularly of the Eastern Mediterranean, of the former Ottoman provinces going into the Balkans and uh, very vivid, especially in Orthodox Christianity, but also among other Christians in the region and in the Levant, especially. Uh, and I, I want to look at how their fasting, their celebratory traditions, uh, Easter, Christmas, have, have really brought out uh, the Eucharistic ritual, have really brought out a specific culture of eating that became integral to how they identified as Christian communities um, and how they perpetuated and kept that identity. Uh, especially in regions where they became uh, minorities. So that's my next project. Nice. It sounds like a lot, but a lot of yeah. wonderful, a lot of wonderful <laughs> as well. Um, we've asked you, Phoebe, to pick a single dish, and we've alluded uh, a lot of times in our conversation already to bread, uh, but also to ritual. So you you chose holy bread. Um, what is holy bread? Can you tell us about it? 
Yes. So holy bread is uh, Eucharistic bread, especially it's it's in Christian traditions, uh, especially vibrant tradition in Orthodox Christianity. Um, and it's the bread. Well, so it can be of two kinds. It can be uh, mainly the bread that is made and prayed upon by priests during liturgical prayers. Uh, it is uh, stamped with particular uh, religious inscriptions and languages. And Christians believe, uh, and this is where the Eucharistic practices are often confusing for those who don't know a lot of Christian history or Christian uh, uh, ritual, but it, Christians believe, especially in, in that part of the world, then with, that when the priest prays over this bread and also over uh, uh, wine, that these uh, mimicking the Last Supper in the Bible, uh, that these become transformed into the bread and blood of Jesus. And so they engage then in the act of the Eucharistic ritual. They partake in the pieces of the bread and the wine as a celebration of and a commemoration of uh, Jesus's act of Last Supper and of his sacrifice, actually, on behalf of Christians. Um, so it's, it's a core part of Christian theology. The mm -hmm. Eucharistic ritual, it's very rooted in uh, Near Eastern tradition. What fascinates me about holy bread are the stamps. And um, I mentioned there are other kinds of holy breads, and you're looking at some of them, actually. In Egypt, uh, for example, we have breads that are considered of spiritual relevance. Yes, they're not preyed upon, and they're not part of the Eucharistic rituals, but we have breads that we make for uh, the Virgin Mary, and the same recipes used to make a bread for uh, the angels. And uh, these holy breads are used to mark, um, they're a kind of act of uh, a vow. People make them at home. So you have the bread that is made and used in a particular church setting in the hands of a priest. And then you have the bread that's made at home, often usually by women. Uh, and uh, these breads are a kind of vow that if, if the Virgin Mary uh, gives you a miracle or answers, you know, helps mediate a request that you have with the divine, you know, that you will make this bread and spread it and distribute it to people as a form of charity. And that's what you're looking at there. And the breads are not always stamped in Egypt, but I, in some, sometimes they are. And that's why I've, I've been really interested in this perpetuating the traditional, traditional making holy bread using stamps, which I think has been really vibrant among Christians of the Middle East and the Balkans. You've been collecting some stamps yourself, right? Yes, I have. Yes, I have here the Coptic holy bread stamp. Um, I have one that follows the Syriac uh, tradition. Uh, of course, we have the Greek um, uh, holy bread Eucharistic prosphora stamp. And you know what? It's not that we're not unfamiliar with stamping things. Uh, you might know these, your mm -hmm. viewers. These are the mamul molds that are used to make pastries, which have a religious celebratory functions. We often eat these cookies or kahks. Uh, the mamun molds are especially popular in the Levant, uh, but we eat them like for Easter or for Eid or Mulid, you know, mm -hmm. so we do. But where I think these other stamps are different is they have a particular spiritual relevance that's tied to the religion uh, in, in Christian ritual that makes them stand out from these other molds. That's beautiful. Please write a book. Make this your your third <laughs> upcoming project. <laughs> Thank you. It's fascinating. Um, we've got a quick Q&A for you. Uh, what are you reading or watching at this moment? Oh, wow. Uh, I just finished a memoir, actually, um, by Grace Cho, who is uh, a professor in, in New York, um, and she is a sociologist who, who works on um, Korean women, uh, comfort women who made it to the United States through the story of her own mother, uh, her mother's survivor story. She wrote a beautiful food memoir called Tastes Like War, which I highly recommend. Uh, so it's, um, it's autobiographical, but it also is filled with a richness of history. And it's about her mother's experience of trauma and, and immigration to the United States in the context of the Korean War. It has nothing to do with the Middle East, I know, but it has to do with food. And I loved it. I, I was you know, choking up the whole time. Highly recommended. Thanks for the recommendation. Okay. Who would you love to shadow for one day? Oh, wow. I didn't know these questions were coming, Sanma. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, That's their presence. 
Daniel Newman, maybe, I think. Ooh, yes. <laughs> he's living an exciting life now. I feel like he's he's really taken medieval food history of the Middle East and made made it a splash and made it as the relevant topic that it ought to be. And he's traveling and filming documentaries about it. And I want to shadow him and, and see sharing it all with us. Um, yes has a beautiful account and it's it's fascinating seeing all the recipes that come to life today from these cookbooks. Yes. Um, okay, what is your guilty pleasure midnight food choice? Oh, definitely some kind of bread. Yeah, so, it's not even, I mean, there's no question. I might go, I love bread too much as it's an Egyptian thing, I'm guessing. So any form of like, and fre- you know, if it's fresh, you know, I, I, I have baked bread late at night before and it's very the best so so i take it as a dish that reminds you most of home uh i just made it this week actually kishk kishk is uh made yeah. from uh, borhol or bulgur and yogurt and you dry it up into balls i'm from have family from upper egypt from isna mm. and you have variations of this throughout uh, the middle east you know and the kishk we have in egypt it has cousin kishks in the levant and uh tarhana and trahana in greece and in turkey and so it's common, this idea of a wheat product that's kind of fermented with some milk or yogurty product and you dehydrate it and you use it in soup. And I love it. Wonderful. Okay, I'm going to open up the Q&A to um, anyone who has any questions for you, Phoebe, um, on halal food, on Christian food, on the holy bread. Holy bread. <laughs> holy bread. <laughs> I think that that should be the title of today. Should be the title. I, I agree. <laughs> um, so someone Garda Ramadito uh, mentioned that um, gelatin. Uh, he finds gelatin is interesting when it has a particular has to be particularly informed about halal to recognize uh, its pork origins. He mentioned that in um, the comments, and I I see that. Um, Perhaps it's something growing up in the Arab world and living there for most of my life. It was something that is just so, um, it's taken for granted. You know, you just go to the supermarket and you just pick up, you know, things and you don't really second guess its sources or the techniques it's it's prepared in. But I think, as you mentioned, Phoebe, for those living in the, in the diaspora, it becomes a, a different um, mindset. Uh different alarm perhaps that gets ticked on when when you're grocery shopping um okay so i have a question if you are i'm sure i mean throughout your research process there i'm sure were many interesting um facts that might have uh come across what was something specific that was totally new to you that you had no clue about and was just completely uh, you found very interesting and and if you would perhaps go on and have a little baby follow-up of that book um, you'd, you'd want to explore that hmm. I have so many book projects I don't know if I would have a baby follow-up but um, but there is one topic that I think surprised me completely which is the the rise of uh, as a popular drink and libation in the latter part of the 20th century in the Middle East and other parts of the Islamic world of what we might call non-alcoholic beer or non-alcoholic malt drinks, however you want to call them, uh, that really start entering the Middle East um, to the Gulf uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Partly, we think, as a consequence of the presence of a lot of foreign workers who wanted, who were kind of interested in, in having a drink with their local business partners. And this was not, uh, there wasn't anything that kind of came close. And so you start seeing the introduction of some of these non-alcoholic beers coming out of Europe into the region. And eventually Saudi Arabia itself becomes a maker of these malt drinks, one famous brand being uh, Barbican that is actually made there. And of course it's meeting all the halal standards and 0.0% you know, alcohol and so on and so forth. And that gets debated. But I, for me, um, 
I, I found it really fascinating how popular this became. And I, we were asking, I was asking questions, why? Because we have a lot of other, we have, you talked about uh, boza or boza and other parts of the Middle East. We have other drinks that, you know, that are local, that are more historic, more traditional. This seems to be something, you know, and beer, yes, was born in the Middle East, in Egypt. But the idea of this non-alcoholic drink and how it comes in seems to be a Western import. Um, so I, I think I think there's a lot about how modernization has altered the way uh, people eat and drink and think about consumption habits and how the Western influence from big corporations, especially, leaves its mark in maybe in, in ways I did not expect, but also allows for a creative reinterpretation of halal rules. There are, by the way, people who think even drinking something that is not technically haram, but looks like something haram should not be allowed. So that bottle that looks like it's emulating something haram should not really be consumed, even if it's 0.00% alcohol, right? Uh, so that really surprised me. And I, I think, you know, it, it could be an avenue for further articles, at least. I don't know about another book. Definitely. It would have been really interesting to have a, a non-alcoholic uh, modern day booza, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. What would that yeah. look like? Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, in Turkey, they do sell non-alcoholic bozas. So, yeah, oh. they, they're they're working on that. Yeah, they call it, uh, yeah, boza. It's called boza and it's non, oh. non-alcoholic. Yeah. At least that's what the manufacturers are suggesting. So. Hmm. Well, we have a question also from Minna. Um, Minna is curious. Uh, she finds Tarid and its development uh, to all these different variations interesting. She's asking, at what point does Tarid or any dish, for that matter, develop into something else that is no longer Tarid? I don't think there's a clear cut answer, but it's an issue that can be discussed. Yeah. And also, thanks for that clarification on Buza, uh, Minna. That makes so much sense to me, of course, that it would come out of uh, that tradition. Um, mm. at no point does it no longer look like itself. Um, yeah, I mean, I think some of the Abbasid period interpretations and the cookbooks that come out of that era, you know, are so sophisticated and layered and show that heavy Persian influence, um, you know, on, on the dish in perhaps a way that but it's but they're still called it's still called Sarid in those books. So um I guess it's a bit subjective, Minna, I guess. You know, they thought it, at that time they thought they were honoring the dish. And at their disposal, at the highest level of society, they had these new ingredients that they were including and encountering that they had picked up from Byzantium and from Persia. And the idea of layering those on that basic dish, I, I'm guessing they they thought saw it as a, a kind of their own version of an, what we would talk about as haute cuisine. It's, it's the medieval haute cuisine and uh, elevating into a high cuisine, a, a very simple dish that was beloved by the prophet. But you're right. I, I think that's something we should engage with. Like, I, I do think mensaf looks quite different than tarid, but many people talk about it as having roots in that tradition. So you know, potentially, I, I hope yeah. I answered. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's another discussion, I think we'll need to do uh, also along with the bread episode. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you so much, Phoebe, for um, joining us today. It's really, really a lovely conversation, and I enjoyed it um, a lot. Um, uh, Phoebe Armanios is um, available uh, to be reached on the email for frmanios at middlebury.edu for those of you listening. Um, and please, if you uh, can share uh, any feedback from today's uh, event, would be lovely. Head over to afikra.com uh, and ask, uh, answer if was this good. Um, and uh, for uh, staying in touch, you can um, find us on Instagram as well as Facebook uh, or on afikra.com. Um, thank you very, very much, Phoebe, for today. We've enjoyed every bit of it. I hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you, everyone, for listening and tuning in. Um, and we hope to uh, see you again in another episode on Afikra Matbakh. Thank you. Thank you so much, Salma and everyone. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.